Father, thank you uh, for who you are. Thank you for how you are working, even when we don't see you, even when we don't understand all the implications or the effects. Um, thank you how you have used Redeemer uh, in, in our lives this year. Um, sometimes that has been been clear, sometimes not been clear. Uh, it's hard to not even know who all is involved and where everybody is and how they're doing. Um, so grateful for last Sunday to see so many people there and present. Um, and so we just continue to ask for uh, unity and just for your, your guidance and care um, as a church. And just, just help me as I present your word the best that I can this morning and that we would um, be affected by it and shaped by it and um, you would just be present in these these few moments. In your name we pray, amen. So 2021, um, it's been quite the year. That's probably one of the biggest understatements in a while, but it's it's been a rough year. There's been a lot that's gone on in addition to a global pandemic, which is enough in and of itself. Um, social injustice, racial tension, political upheaval, all of these things have been in, in their own in their own right, um, many catastrophes and tragedies. Um, and as as I've processed all this, uh, I would say that one of the bigger tragedies and catastrophes for me has been what I've observed to be a collective response to these things, how we have interacted with each other, how we responded to each other. Uh, all of those things have have been so saddening to see. And I don't really know how else to sum it up other than just to say, very sad. Um, and at times I felt myself uh, getting angry, um, frustrated, but just un unable to know how to really react to the, the upheaval uh, that seems like it's happening in our society and within Christianity. Uh, and I think that was what was the hardest for me, is just really taking a good, hard look at my faith and questioning it, to be quite honest. Questioning um, the way that I was seeing it represented, the way that I was seeing it um, lived out or expressed, um, caused me to question my faith at a fundamental level that I don't think I had ever really done before. Um, and... You know, some people talk a lot about, you know, deconstructionism or really kind of a dismantling or an unboxing of, of, of core ideas or core truths and saying, do I believe this? Do I understand this? Um, and while I don't know that I've quite gone there in that way, it certainly has, I've been more empathetic towards people that have um, because of just the collective conflict and, and, and really tragedy of the, the last year. Um, and so I think all, all I really want to say about that is there's a lot of ideas here that are kind of coming from that, but I do think it's important to kind of speak to doubt as a thing in the Christian church. I, I've, I very often do not feel it is a safe place to talk about doubt at any fundamental level. Um, I can say I disagree with God. I can say I, I'm not really sure what he's doing, but to say I doubt him, his existence, um, what's really going on there, that, that feels like another step. 
Um, and so I want to say just a couple of things about that. If you're in that place, we're, we're obviously not going to be able to give that um, its full uh, hearing <laughs> this morning in this talk. But um, just as I've processed it this past year, I think a few things, um, three things, in, in fact, just just to kind of go there is uh, I think Easter, you know, as we just celebrated last last weekend, um, it reminds me that there there's a guy central to that story called Thomas and he doubted. Um, and Thomas is not just a blip. Uh, and Thomas wasn't just dismissed. Thomas was invited in and he was told to touch the wounds. This was something that Jesus uh, offered him and he afforded him. And it was a tender, intimate moment. And we kind of use him as a, as a bit of uh, a scapegoat or somebody to kind of throw under the bus. But he was a core part of this story and he was invited in. He was invited in to, to touch, to feel and to know. Um, and this was a gracious and an intimate thing. And so I, regardless of how you want to apply that or think about that, this is true. It's recorded in the Bible and um, it's a moving thing. And I think uh, you can find yourself there too. Jude talked about this and said, uh, to a certain degree and said, uh, have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, in Jude chapter one, verse 22. The other thing that, that I've been reminded of is that faith is a faith. <laughs> uh, we are literally reaching out and touching something we cannot see and cannot physically feel. And so that is, that is uh, a reality. Faith is a faith. Um, seems simple, but I think sometimes it's, it's good to remember that. And it, and it is something that we enter into um, without having all of the pieces put together. Uh, and then the other thing I think is that it's supernatural. Um, we are dealing with things that are beyond uh, our understanding and beyond uh, what we can kind of kind of wrap up or put together. So if, if we're not prepared for that, if we're not prepared for the supernatural, then, then we're, we should be prepared to be shocked by a lot of things because in God's economy, things happen that shouldn't happen and they happen to people they shouldn't happen to and um, that is kind of the beauty of this journey, this faith journey that we're all in. So um, as a doubter, uh, I say to doubters, um, I understand the, the, the maybe some of the trauma you've been through and all of us have been through, as we've said, um, like what is going on in this, this faith that I have kind of been a part of and this expression that I've understood, what, what is happening here? And do I belong in it? And, and how do I, how do I, um, how do I understand better, um, my relationship to it and to God? And so that's, that's what I hope we can kind of unpack. And that's really where a lot of this, uh, the place that a lot of this is coming from. Um, so we're going to read first Corinthians three eighteen and really look at that verse. Uh, together this morning. So let me just read that for us and then we'll jump in and we'll look at verses around in and around it as well. But um, let's start there with, with verse 18. So Paul is the writer here. He's writing to the Corinthian people and he tells them at the end of chapter three, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So the context that Paul is writing, um, there's a lot of different things going on here, but I think it's safe to say that the context that he's writing in is one of trouble. Uh, there is trouble. There's trouble happening spiritually. There's tra- trouble happening physically. There's trouble happening um, uh, that is cent- centered on him. And there's trouble that's happening um, from without. And so I think without getting into that in any detail, if you read Second uh, Corinthians, you can kind of start to see um, some of that context. Um, but he says, he says earlier on, actually, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so this this uh, understanding that Paul has is probably like what a lot of people may have felt over the last year. Um, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. Um, in other in other times in life, I might think he's being a little dramatic. Twenty twenty one or twenty twenty rather, I think he's he's not maybe being dramatic enough. So trouble in the middle of trouble um, is really the context that we're looking at, and I think it obviously extremely uh, appropriate uh, to what we're dealing with as a society, as a church, and uh, probably personally as well. So transformation is really kind of the big idea that I want to talk about this morning. And um, so in relationship to that, in relationship to trouble, one of the books um, that's been really beneficial to me, surprisingly so, was rereading The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, And really, when you take a look at that book, what I realized as I was probably you know, a chapter or two into it, is was the uh, profound sense of, of the time that it was speaking into. Um, so I just wanted to like draw a couple of those things from, from a point of synopsis and then, and then read a quote to you um, as we think about where we are as a society, where Paul is kind of speaking from, and this kind of narrative that C.S. Lewis paints for us um, helps us realize that these kinds of times have come before. And they um, probably will come again. And um, some just some really helpful commentary, I think, in the form of this this narrative. Um, so the last battle kind of revolves or starts with there's this ape and this donkey, and they live together um, kind of in the same community. And they stumble upon the skin of a lion coming out of the stream. The ape, being kind of clever and conniving, decides to take this skin dry it out, and sew it into a costume that the donkey can wear. Now, if you know of anything uh, about the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the lion is a symbol of, of Aslan. Aslan being a lion who is uh, a picture of Christ, uh, the Christ figure in the whole narrative. Um, so he, he decides, let's give you this skin and you can wear it. The donkey is very uncomfortable with this because of the implications being, you know, people are going to think I'm Aslan. The ape says, of course they will. That's the point. If we give you this skin, you wear it, we can get anything we want. So here they are in this position where they are tempted to 
to manipulate religion, if you will, for personal gain, personal end. And, and it's innocent enough. You know, we went to the market last week or yesterday, and they didn't have any oranges or bananas. I bet if you wore the, the costume, you wore the skin, and we went to the market, we could get them to get bananas and oranges. And so their logic starts to flow out from there. And the donkey decides to take part, and they start um, deciding to utilize the power of Aslan to get personal gain. Uh, their intentions, of course, as I mentioned, start innocent enough, but at first it quickly becomes more, more diabolical and more evil. And before you know it, they are uh, ravaging the Narnia's forests, killing trees, which you know in Narnia a lot of these trees are alive, and they're selling the, they're selling uh, or living beings, and they're selling the lumber to Narnia's enemies. So word of all this gets to the king, and to his um, uh, some of his colleagues, and they are confused. They hear Aslan is saying that they should do that. This is what is to be done. That this is coming from Aslan, and so uh, one one event kind of leads to the next, and the king of Narnia ends up trying to interject himself into all of this. That doesn't go well. Um, people think from Narnia think that they are following Aslan. Aslan's enemies are now empowered. So there is just trouble and despair. And the king of Narnia is imprisoned at this one critical juncture. He's imprisoned by his enemies. He's imprisoned by once faithful Narnians that believe they're taking orders from the true Aslan. And he is overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the darkness and the helplessness of this whole situation. Some of those actions he did out of rashness and frustration and anger. And here he is imprisoned. And he remembers at a, at a critical point that in the past, moments like this, Aslan, Aslan would act and he would call children from another world to help kind of come in and, and, and act uh, and free the, whatever the situation was or help kind of solve that or, or um, be a part of that in a, in a really significant way. So in this moment, he, in his desperation, as he starts thinking about that and he starts thinking about the need to restore this honor and truth to the land once again, he, he cries out to Aslan. And this is what he says. It's, it's, it's such a meaningful um, passage as we think about the current times we're in. He says this, um, they have always come, and he's crying out to Aslan, or he's thinking about it. They have always come when things were at their worst. Oh, if only they could come now. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. But the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all Narnia. Still, there was no change in the night or the wood. But there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope. And somehow he felt stronger. I love that later on, this same person dealing with these kinds of things in this moment, he reaches out to one of the children as she too is in despair. And he tells her courage, child, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. So these are the types of things um, that I think we can all relate 
to, that, that I related to as I started reading this, this trouble, darkness, where is God? Who, you know, and in a certain sense, people in this story are saying, who is God? Like, what is happening? I think one of the, one of the things I've meditated on uh, throughout this year is this idea of transformation. You know, as we looked at people around us, we looked at um, different events, there's this, there's this sense or this feeling uh, of, tra- of, of this key idea in Scripture, this idea of transformation, that we will all be changed, that we can change, that we are going to become different, like Christ, um, sanctified, glorified. We can grow. Um, we can move beyond these, these practices or these behaviors or these attitudes that, that we feel hold us back or or do not reflect properly who God is or who Christ is. Scripture talks about these in different ways. I just pulled out three very quickly, but I think Scripture is full of all these kinds of different references to transformation and change. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Ezekiel 36.26 says, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So not reaching ultimate perfection, right? But a progressive journey of faith that has an upward trajectory and a glorified end. So I think, if, if I'm honest with myself, and especially probably over this past year, that if I doubted anything, it was this idea, transformation. <laughs> I look at people in, the, in this world, I look at circumstances, and I, and I doubt this idea. And I think for these th- three reasons why I doubt this idea, um, and, and similar to what we just kind of read with the last battle and what Paul is talking about and Second Corinthians, the first thing would be there's darkness everywhere. And, and I feel like we've seen it or been maybe been exposed to it in more ways, you know, recently, maybe than in the past, and maybe you and your own experience even more so. But this, when we're faced with darkness, that idea of transformation can feel um, not as true or untrue or, or maybe a, a wishful thinking. There's darkness everywhere. Two, people do really disappointing things. Uh, Christian people do really disappointing things. Um, I think R- Ravi Zacharias comes to mind, you know, different scandal in the Christian church. You know, those types of things can really floor us. Like, I thought change was possible. I thought transformation was a thing. Why is this person behaving this way? Why is this person so utterly diabolical in the name of Christ? Why are they deceiving people? Or why are they making these kinds of decisions? So people do really disappointing things. And then the third is the hardest kind of to confront, and that's I do really disappointing things. I disappoint myself. I disappoint the people that I care about that are in my life, uh, my family, my friends, my church. And all three of those things together sometimes can stack up against us and say, is this idea of transformation really possible? Is it just some sort of a carrot on a stick? Or is it something, that is it a reality we can trust in and look to and work toward? 
so that that's really what we're going to look at here um uh even with my very long introduction the three things here is uh, the questions kind of formed in a question and this is how i generally um kind of study god's word is just take a take a look at different questions and i think the three things that come to mind as i looked at uh Second Corinthians three eighteen were is transformation possible? Um, how does transformation happen if possible? And what does transformation look like? And there's a lot more that I'm sure we could look at, but I think this verse um, is super comforting as we think about how God is working in people and in the world and in us and what we can kind of expect. So transformation is possible. Who is it possible for? And who is transformed? And Paul starts right off by telling us, I love this this, uh, phrase or these three little words here uh, that could easily be skipped over. And we all, this this community, this communal kind of language, um, this inclusive language. Um, in, in In the beginning of the, of the chapter, or the beginning, yeah, the beginning of the chapter, Paul calls, he's talking about letters of recommendation, and he actually calls people, the people he's writing to, you are my letter of recommendation. Like, what God is doing in your life is, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, is my letter of recommendation. Um, he, he says that in verses 1 through 5. Are, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts and to be known and be read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So we, we all are that, that testimony or that letter of recommendation in regards to transformation being possible. And this is an utterly inclusive word. And I think the thing that that jumped out at me as I read that was if if we could collectively broaden our understanding of what we all means, um, I think that would be God working in, in the world and in the church. Um, as we think about the kind of the events of the past um, the past, you know, 20, 2020, and also moving into 2021, uh, if we could all think about what we all means to us, we all, as we all, what does that mean? Does that mean your family? Broaden that out. Does that mean your GC? Broaden that out. Does that mean our church? Broaden that out to the community. Does that mean our town, our city? Broaden that out to the state. Does that just, we all means all the Christians in Washington state or broaden that out to the country and just keep broadening it out, broadening it out, broadening it out as we think about our relationship to each other and our relationship to God. Realize that right now there are more people than we can count worshiping the same God in such wonderfully diverse and different ways. Um, Jesus embodied this kind of nuance so well when we think about, well, there are things to separate us. There are things to divide us. We've done a really good job in the past year and a half of kind of deciding what those things are. Uh, And there are certainly things. And I think some of the questions that came up uh, in the talk with Claude were indicative of that. Like, when do we say, you know what, this is wrong and we are not united because of this? Well, Jesus, I think, did that so well, right? He wasn't afraid 
to flip over a table in the temple, forcibly move people out of there and insist that they leave. But his life was also marked by a reckless, you know, Tim Keller talks about, defines God as prodigal, right? This reckless abandon, prodigal, the true prodigal in that narrative is God himself because he recklessly pursues people um, uh, at the expense of his own reputation. Uh, he is marked by a reckless willingness to expand society's definition of we. Um, I think to a certain degree, and it's hard for me to say this because I don't believe that I embody this, but I think this is how Jesus lived. If people don't question who you hang out with, it might not be far enough. And, and learning, if we can learn as a church to how do we expand that? How do we think about how we are collectively um, together working towards transformation? Um, I think that if we expand who we is, we can truly see the nature of transformation in light of the gospel. God saves different people in different contexts who express his nature and likeness in different ways. And this is actually how we get a full picture, a complete picture of who God actually is when we start expanding our definition of we all. We see heaven more clearly when we broader, broaden our own circles here on earth. So when we think about we all, who, who is in that group of we all? I said broaden it. Well, where do we broaden it to? Well, people with unveiled faces is how, is how Paul talks about this. Um, so in 2 Corinthians, uh, if, we, if we look back further in the chapter, specifically at verses 12 leading up to where we're at, Paul is talking about Moses. And he's talking about a specific narrative in the book of Exodus where Moses went up to commune with God to get the Ten Commandments and bring it down to the people. And when he did that, he was exposed to God in such a significant manner that his face literally radiated. It, it shone. This wasn't a metaphor. It was physical. And his face shone so much that he had to cover it up. So Paul talks about the old and the new covenant. And, and without getting all into that, this is before Christ came and lived a life and uh, died and died on the cross for us. This was before that. And he says in the old covenant, the, the people could not be exposed to that glory, even secondhand. Um, and so, so Moses had to cover his face. So this is what he has to say. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one returns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then he goes on, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So this... This, this fact that um, we are unveiled, that our faces are unveiled, that the uniting there on this side of the cross, as Jesus lived a life and died in our place um, and brought us to God, that what is uniting us is ironically the very thing that sometimes divides us, and that's our faces. I love that, that, um, 
that that idea, that illustration, because the face is indicative of who we are as humans, our personhood, all the nuance, all the all the um, the differences and the details, our personhood. So the very thing that we often use to discriminate and compartmentalize, and 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 kind of size people up is the very thing that Paul draws our attention to as a point of unity. Because in Christ, all of our faces are unveiled and we are all able to be exposed to his glory without any barrier. That's what unifies all of us, regardless of where they are in the, the city, the state, the, the country, or the world. And really seeing that as the thing that matters, um, Paul believed was going to have an impact on people's view of each other and people's view of God himself. So um, transformation is possible and it happens in this way collectively uh, and unified around this idea of having an unveiled face. Um, so so the other thing then would be this idea of transformation, how transformation happens by experiencing, by experiencing. So sometimes we always feel like there's, there's a bit of a gap. You know, we, we say um, we, we want to know what the path is to transformation. There's this, there's this kind of funny meme or illustration that I stumbled upon in a book I was reading uh, where it looks like a tutorial for drawing, you know, and the first frame is figure one, you know, draw two circles. You know, the, the, the claim is how, how do I draw an owl? And the first is, you know, we'll draw two circles. And then the next is figure two, draw the owl. And, and of course the joke is, well, there's a whole lot in between there that I have not, that has not been communicated. The beginning is clear. The end is clear but all the details are what actually make the owl. So I think sometimes there's that, that disconnect of like, how, how do we actually see that transformation happening? We see the beginning and we see the end, but what's happening all in the middle? And what Paul tells us is what's happening in the middle every day, every hour, every minute is this idea of beholding the glory of the Lord. So I think one of the things that's definitely come to mind and, and come to the surface for me personally is I've looked at like my faith in Christianity and my disappointment with it and frustrations with how I'm seeing things expressed is that um, my frustration and my issue with my faith is usually in the context of what I see expressed in other Christians who or other people who claim this banner. I don't want to be associated with that or I don't resonate, resonate with that expression or um, or that thing or that thing. So I think regardless of where you're at in your faith or even this idea of deconstructionism, I, I would say, and, and this is maybe a bold claim, and some of you may have other kind of opinions on this, and I respect that for sure, but, but I think as I've looked at it myself, that deconstructionism usually doesn't happen by careful study and emulation of Jesus himself. Usually my temptation is to kind of say, oh, Christianity is, is this or this or this, or have critique of it, is not happening by looking at Jesus. It's happening by looking at other expressions. Now, those are not insignificant, and those have fallout. Those have implications as far as um, 
how other people understand Jesus. So those, those things are important and I don't want to act like they're not, but personally, I feel like, um, when I look at Jesus, I do not have those same feelings. Uh, Jesus doesn't, nothing about him is off-putting. He doesn't tick me off. Uh, he doesn't disappoint me. Everything that he did in his life, um, are the opposite. They inspire me to this, this, this picture of, of how to perfectly respond uh, to every situation, to every different kind of person, when to listen, when to cry, when to get angry, uh, when to, to act, when to make change, when to wait, when all of these things are, I look at that and I think if I could live that way, perhaps maybe my world around me would also be changed and would also be affected. Um, he, he deviated from the popular group and then he sided with maybe the right group in another way. So whenever I'm tempted to, to look at my faith and to criticize it or to critique it, I like, am I looking at Jesus or am I looking at these other expressions? And again, I know that there are holes there in, res in, in regards to how, um, the, our faith is reflected in the world. And I think that's what gives me a lot of sadness, but I think what gives me a lot of hope is the person of Jesus and who he is and and how he really can change the world. So this idea of beholding, um, I think is so potent as we think about, are we, are we really looking at Jesus? Um, John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he, he kind of puts it this way. Um, he says, because what you give, because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for those uh, apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in his world, but not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama or the non-stop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. As if we give it in the first place, much of it is stolen by a clever algorithm out of how to monetize our precious attention. But again, we become what we give our attention to, for better or for worse. So this idea then that Paul is, is bringing to us is saying, we all with unveiled faces will behold the glory of the Lord. So this idea of unveiled faces connected to this idea of beholding the glory of the Lord. You know, as we've looked at, uh, you know, interacting over the last year, what is what would be a good illustration of an unveiled face? <laughs> I think we're, we all look around and we all have them, right? Or a veiled face, rather. He, here we are. Have you ever run into somebody you know very well in a store? or out and about, and for a second, you don't know who they are, right? Because there's this, there's this um, barrier. There's something inhibiting your understanding of them. And so Paul is saying that when we behold, we behold the glory of the Lord, we do it because of Christ with an unveiled face. We, we can see it all. Not like the people in Israel that had to have some of it hidden. Um, we can see it all. We can have that un unveiled, unmasked. Um, there may be a debate about masks or no mask, but when it comes to the Apostle Paul and the glory of the Lord, he was a no-masker. 
and he believed in unveiling, unveil, having an unveiled face, clear, unconstructed view, and knowing um, everything, every emotion, all the things. I've, I've realized, yes, the eyes are very helpful in communicating things to people, but um, when you don't have the rest of the face, it's very hard to know what is someone thinking. Are they about to say something? Are they... Are they disagreeing with you and, and, and you can't really tell because you can only see their eyes? Are their lips pursed? Um, are they about ready to laugh? There's so much that's hidden. And Paul is saying, when we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face, there's, there's a clarity of understanding that can come to us. Not being veiled um, by what we're putting into our minds maybe is a good way to kind of take it from a modern context, the way that John Mark Comer is kind of telling us we're veiling our minds by kind of what we're giving our attention to and what we're, where we're trying to get our information about Jesus or about the world from. Unveiled faces, nothing const uh, really constricting or hiding. And I think that this is true too, because as we look at the, the gospel, the contrary message of the gospel is, is different from what we're seeing all around us. When we look at Christ, we see that. The contrary message of the gospel is that the way to win is to lose, the way to get is to give, and the way to live is to die. This is, this is not popular. And this is, does not come out in our politics. This does not come out in our news cycles. This does not come out in uh, any of these other sources. When we stop looking at Jesus as described in the gospels in this way, we lose this and we forget and we adopt paradigms he did not live by. Um, and I think when, when we do adopt those paradigms, we are putting that veil over the gospel and we cannot see Jesus clearly. We cannot behold the glory of the Lord in an unveiled manner. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known um, I love that idea just from a standpoint of glorification. When, when God looks at us, he doesn't necessarily look at everything that is current. He looks at glorification as an end product. And I think we'd be a lot less hard on ourselves and each other if we saw God in that manner fully. We are fully known. And I think that that is just a beautiful expression of the heart of God and, and where he sees us in relationship to where we will be, where we will all be. This isn't a where we hope to be. This is where we will all be. We'll get into that in a little bit here as well. And so then lastly, this this last point, um, I think is a really big, been a big one for me, uh, especially in a time of kind of discouragement and frustration. Transformation is produced by transformation. And that seems a little, seems a little bit, backwards, but I think that really hits at this idea from one degree of glory to another, this idea that things are, are built on each other. Um, I was going to get a picture of this before the slides were put together and I, and I didn't, but I was walking in my neighborhood, uh, recently and, you know, we're, we're dealing with spring right now, right? So, so things, um, have been dead and things are coming back to life. And I noticed there's these beautiful grasses that one of my neighbors has in front of their houses. I, I'm fairly obsessed with all different kinds of grasses and they had these big grasses. They kind of provide this like 
barrier to their house between the sidewalk. Well, in the winter, they cut them down all the way down to the bottom. And the last few years, I've noticed they cut them down, and then they grow back up in the spring. And so I look at them uh, the other day, and they, they're basically a brown dead clump. And then I go walk over to them, and there are like three little sprouts of green. Now, are, is, that, is, that, is that clump of grass dead or alive? It's alive. It's alive. And in fact, it's going to grow up bigger than it did last year. And that death has brought up, brought that life, made that life possi- possible. And the life that is going to come is going to be more abundant than the life that it had before. So that idea of the one degree of glory to another, you know, why do I know that the, that the grasses are going to come back again? Well, I think this is an encouraging point. I've seen it before. I've seen those grasses before. I think as you look at your own life and you think at some of your failure and frustrations and maybe in the life, li- uh, the life of others, think about what you've seen before. Think about what's happened before. And think about that cycle sometimes of death and life and death and life and the fact that that one degree of glory to another and transformation produces transformation. Um, it's a journey, not so much as a destination and and that ever the idea of ever increasing glory in the in the NIV the rendering of the Greek the NIV translation of the Bible the rendering of that Greek phrase from glory to glory is ever increasing glory, a Latin phrase that's similar to that that sometimes people use or you see it on, on academic seals is from strength to strength. So this idea of a journey, not a destination. You know, I I saw this illustration of online. You know, you have. It's kind of like a financial market or an idea of an arrow going straight up and to the right. And that's our idea of growth. Um, and, and I think I have a slide of that. So it, it has an arrow going up and to the right. And that is generally our sense of what transformation is going to look like. I'm going to start at a point and I'm going to end up at a point. But the right is kind of more how it actually looks. There's this there's this idea that it kind of goes up up and down and around. But in the end... It's still headed up, um, more, more like a financial market or a or a or a real estate market than this like straight arrow in one direction. It'll go up and down, up and down, but over time, with courage and perseverance, it'll go up. It'll end up up, and that is God's. I think God's promise to us, and all those little divots, those ups and downs, are what bring about that. Um, that strength and that change and that learning and that growth that are built upon each other and on top of each other. Not an idea of starting over, but an idea of continuing. I think often in, in Christian circles and in Christian life and in worship songs, we hear this like starting over, starting over. I need to start over. I did, something happened. I need to start over. And while I understand the sentiment of that and where that's coming from, I've, I've kind of gotten a little frustrated or tired of that because it feels like there's this, well, because there was that juncture where things went south, everything that came before it is now no longer valid. It's not starting over. It's keep going. And God continues to give grace to build those things on top of each other to bring us where he is get, taking us, where he, is, where he has promised to bring us. Um, so I think that that's just a, a, 
a really a beautiful expression of how God works. The reality of your sin does not cancel out the reality of your salvation. The things that you are not good at don't cancel out the things that you're good at and vice versa, right? We can't just revel in what we're good at and ignore the things we need to grow in. I think some of our house rules help us well here, right? Celebrate what's right as we work on what's wrong. Or another one would be, and I'm sorry if I'm paraphrasing these a little too much, but the other one would be one degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. So I would just encourage us as we think about how God is working um, and kind of the context of the verse here is that we should not start over. We should just keep going and uh, just be so grateful for how God is working uh, in us in that continuing on and pressing in. And like Thomas, he just continues to invite us in in a very intimate special way. C.S. Lewis said, really a good understanding of this would be, there is, there are no ordinary people. Uh, You have never talked to a mere mortal of where we're headed and where we're ended up as uh, believers in Jesus is really true. So uh, as we, as we kind of wrap this up here, um, I think uh, going back to the last battle, um, one of my favorite parts of the book is where it all kind of ends up. And I think there's a lot of correlation for us here. So it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then cried, I have come home. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. And he shook his mane and he sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run. And they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even the fat little puzzle and the short-legged pog and the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen, and the country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. What a beautiful expression of what we're made for what heaven will be like, but what we can experience here on earth as well. Whenever we we experience something, whenever we enter into something difficult or hard or new, and we learn a thing and we arrive at a certain plane, and then someone introduces us to another idea or another thought or another tip or another experience, and and we do that if you're into hiking or mountain biking, where, where I've experienced it is you, you find a trail and you conquer that or you, you, you kind of experience that and then someone goes, have you, have you taken this route? Have you tried this? And you do that and it just keeps getting, the other was great and the next one is better yet. And your appreciation and experience of that both in community and personally is, is ever growing and building on top of each other. Transformation, building on top of transformation, creating transformation. And this is the, the kind of the vision that, that God has for us. It's like going through all of Christmas and your parents walking out with a whole bunch more presents they hid in the closet. 
you know, the wait, there's more kind of idea is something that is promised to us in eternity, but we can experience it here now. And those kinds of experiences, I think, give us that, that attitude that God uses so well, which is this juxtaposition of both humility and confidence. So we're humble as we think about where we've come. We're confident as we think about how far we've come and where we're headed. Uh, and then we can invite other people into that same experience. And this is what God has for us um, as, as a church community as well. This idea of come further up and come further in. And I love that the fact that this group of characters that we just read a short passage here about, all along in the book was a small band, you know, started with Tyrion and started then with the children and the unicorn. And they were, de- they were discouraged and they were depressed and all they saw was darkness. And they cried out to Aslan and nothing changed. And slowly other, other characters join, 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 join. And they have this big band at the end and they're calling each other regardless of who they are or how fast they can run. And they're all together charging up waterfalls and hills and rocks and come further. And they're calling each other. First, it was just Aslan. Then it's everyone calling each other into this new reality of come further up and come further in. And this is a taste of heaven that we can experience here on earth. This is the path of growth. This is the path of transformation. This is God working in our lives. We will reach completion. Um, The spiritual market won't crash. Um, It will dip, but it won't crash and it will trend up over time. It's secured because of Jesus and because of his work on the cross. Um, I love the title of an old Max Licato book that I remember reading in college called The Grip in the Grip of Grace. And if I, if my testimony is anything is that God just hasn't let me go. And I pray that's true of you as well this morning. And it ends with this, um, this one, you know, kind of humiliating the whole thing. This comes from the Lord, uh, Paul says at the end of verse 18, uh, who is the spirit. The spirit of freedom is the originator of all things. He's the one that will make it come to pass. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of framed it up this way as as the chapter kind of comes to a close. If one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would want to do anything else. That's the promise of the spirit's help. Spirit-filled running, unveiled faces, further up, further in, Uh, Don't start over, keep going, and um, we can experience, I I think, what what Paul intended and what C.S. Lewis painted a picture for us here is that idea of um, how God is working his agenda, his economy here on earth in the midst of darkness, in the midst of trouble. Um, We're seeing the little bits of green pop out of the the dead, and there will be uh, full-grown grass again. Um, and I'm grateful for that and, and just hang on to that promise and that reminder and, um, pray that God will allow you to do that as well. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for being with us here this morning. Um, just give us grace. We just need your presence. Uh, I I don't know how else to pray sometimes. And I think these moments are, are similar. So please just, um, go with us. Give us grace to see this journey, this this gospel infused, this this journey of, of having unveiled faces 
And um, yeah, th just thank you for for that grip of grace and not giving up on of us as, as uh, discouraged or frustrated or as doubtful as we can be. In your name we pray. Amen.